Welcome to the World Geography Podcast with Dr. Thomas Larson. The theme of this two-part podcast is rebellion in many of its manifestations. Rebellion refers to the resistance of a less powerful group against a more powerful one. Rebellion comes in the form of political protests, overthrows of power, and expressions of resistance through art, music, and poetry. Landscapes of Mexico, Central America, and the Caribbean are filled with examples of rebellion. We explored rebellions against common colonial narratives, as well as the first slave-led rebellion in the New World. We also discovered why people are rebelling against popular culture's expectations of indigenous people. We will look at how rebellion takes place in the modern political and economic realms through reggae music, the story of Pancho Villa, banana republics in Central America, and the Cuban Revolution. We build upon the idea that rebellion is a multifaceted form of placemaking and place destruction, involving not just political ideologies, but also culture and economics. By the end, we question whether or not it makes sense to romanticize revolutionary figures. In place of pledging one's allegiance to a particular revolutionary figure, we consider how generosity, compassion, and forgiveness become evergreen methods to transform society, regardless of the historical context. But first... is a Caribbean expression of protest and rebellion. Reggae has its roots in Rastafari, a religion which deserves some attention before we get into the music. The Rastafari religion began in the 1930s among Jamaicans, who descended from Africa. Jamaica is this mountainous island country in the Greater Antilles, with Kingston as its capital. Jamaica has been occupied by the Spanish, French, and English colonists. Place names in the country interweave each of these colonial languages. Eventually, the country gained independence from the United Kingdom in 1962. The vast majority of Jamaicans are descendants from African slaves and brought to the island to work on sugar plantations. Rastafarianism's head figure is Marcus Garvey, who emphasized black self-empowerment in spite of colonial difficulties. Garvey was born in Jamaica and founded the Universal Negro Improvement Association in 1914. He preached that blacks in the New World were biblical Jews, exiles who should return to Africa. Africa represented Zion in the eyes of Rastafarians. Rastafarians equate Jamaica's white colonial culture to Babylon, a place that they could never entirely call home until they reached their homeland of Zion. And the final emperor of Ethiopia's 3,000-year-old monarchy, Haile Selassie I, is the divine leader of Rastafarianism, the God incarnate. Practicing Rastafarians are forbidden to cut their hair until Babylon falls, 
which is why prominent Rasas wear long dreadlocks. Rivers of Babylon was a famous reggae song by the Melodians in 1970 that relayed the teachings of Rastafarianism. Quote, by the rivers of Babylon, where we sat down, and there we wept when we remembered Zion, because the wicked carried us away in captivity, required from us a song. How can we sing King Alpha's song in a strange land? Unquote. The song is beautiful and painful. It conveys the feeling of outsideness in Jamaica and how that sentiment connects to the history of slavery and a yearning to return to the African homeland. Reggae music emerged from Rasta beliefs during the 1960s, but its rhythms can be traced all the way back to the traditional African drumming rhythms. In reggae music, the drummer keeps time on the hi hat cymbal and the rim of the snare drum. With the bass drum happening on every three of four beats. The experience makes you feel like you're on a boat, passing up over a wave on the first two beats, then dropping fast on the third before you begin your next ascent up to the fourth. Guitarists will strum in offbeat riffs, which adds more layers and variety to the drums. And the thick sound of the bass guitar stitches the drums and guitar together. With this flowing tone. Reggae represented a modern form of cultural rebellion, especially when musician Bob Marley became an international phenomenon. Bob Marley was born in a small rural village. His family moved to government housing in Kingston, a place called Trenchtown. While in Trenchtown, Kingston, Marley discovered rhythm and blues music. He quickly became A contributing member to the scene. A band formed around Marley called the Wailers, a name which symbolized a sufferer or witness. Wailers were meant to share the stories of suffering in the city's low income neighborhoods. Marley took to Rastafarianism when his spouse, Rita Marley, witnessed Haile Selassie's famous visit in Jamaica in 1966. Bob Marley's conversion would turn him into a figurehead for Rastafarianism. The song War channels the Rastafari rebelliousness. The tune interrogates the problems of racial conflict. Quote, Until the philosophy which hold one race superior and another inferior is finally and permanently discredited. Jamaica, like other places, symbolized a sort of purgatory. For those who were most marginalized. When Jamaica gained independence from the UK in 1962, black citizens had very little political influence, even though they comprised the majority of people in the country. Marley called international attention to this problem. Marley's popularity led him to become a noble figure and a divisive figure in Jamaica's political realm. Ultimately, The Rasta was one of innumerable artists who counteracted the cancer of racism plaguing the world. Marley would eventually die of a cancer of his own, a brain tumor, which spread to other parts of his body. In the last days of his life, Bob consoled his wife Rita by saying, Don't cry, keep singing. Bob Marley was by no means perfect, 
But his music exemplified how rebellion can be beautiful, transformative, and humanizing. Moving forward, we return to a question I posed in the previous podcast. Which country gained its independence during the same year as the state of Missouri and had close to 50 different governments during its first 30 years? The correct answer is Mexico. Mexico gained its independence from the Spanish in 1821. When it first became a country, Mexico endured revolution after revolution, coup after coup. A coup was the name for when a group of rebels quickly and violently seizes control over the government. Living in Mexico was filled with social uncertainty and political instability. Its first 100 years involved constant battles between the government in charge and the rebels who sought to take power. We will focus on one such rebel named Pancho Villa. Back in 2012, I attended an archaeological field camp in New Mexico, right along the border between Mexico and the United States. The team investigated one of the northernmost cities of the complex Casas Grandes civilizations. The Casas Grandes had its heyday around the year 1200 in the Common Era. We excavated tens of thousands of artifacts, including projectile points, painted pottery, and a ball court for sports competitions. The site was just a short drive away from Columbus, New Mexico, the site of the only Latin American invasion on U.S. soil. Pancho Villa led the raid, resulting in the deaths of around two dozen Americans and around 100 of Villa's men. Villa declared that, quote, Mexico is a land for the free and a tomb for thrones, crowns, and traitors, unquote, before making the attack. If you were to travel to this small border town, you will discover that bullet holes can still be found on the sides of the buildings. Villa was rebelling against the government at the time, which was run by Venustiano Carranza. The United States helped put Carranza into power following a civil war in 1913 against General Victoriano Huerta. When the U.S. became dissatisfied with Carranza's work, it supported the rebel Pancho Villa in 1914. Soon, Carranza began to comply with the Americans, aligning his policies with the U.S. Consequently, he received more support from the neighbors to the north. Villa had reason to suspect that Carranza was creating a backdoor deal with the United States. Angered by this conspiracy and the loss of U.S. support, Villa raided Columbus, New Mexico, with 1,500 guerrilla soldiers. U.S. soldiers, led by General John Persing, responded. They spent two years trying to track down Villa and his soldiers. Pershing was ultimately unsuccessful. The evasive Pancho Villa became a symbol of in-state and interstate rebellion for Mexico. With reggae, we experience a revolution in creativity for addressing racism, protest, and empowering marginalized groups. With the story of Pancho Villa in Columbus, New Mexico, we learn that revolution and rebellion are international phenomena. The U.S. has been especially involved in instigating and putting a stop to such rebellions. One example of the U.S. intervening includes the case of the Banana Republics. Central America contains numerous banana republics. In this case, we are not talking about the clothing store. Banana republics represent countries that are politically unstable, 
but economically dependent on one export. That export can be bananas, rubber, or other in-demand products. In 1877, the United States entered a banana craze. Demand for bananas was sparked by the establishment of the Coyamel Fruit Company. Coyamel eventually gave rise to the Chiquita Brands International, which sells fruit to this day, and you can find it in the grocery stores. United Fruit Company began in 1899 and eventually bought Coyamel. Honduras was the first country to gain the title of Banana Republic. An American writer, whose alias was O. Henry, coined the term. Henry penned a collection of short stories called Cabbages and Kings. In one of the stories, the writer depicts a small, maritime, banana republic of Anchuria, a fictional land modeled after Honduras. The writer fled to Honduras when he was running from Texas authorities, who alleged he was embezzling money. The term banana republic seems like an ideal tropical utopia, but real banana republics were far from it. Americans in other Western countries were bored with their mid-latitude produce. After bananas hit the market, Americans craved the novel tropical fruit. Increased demand compelled economies in Honduras and Guatemala to drive political decisions and even stage military interventions. In exchange for land, companies like the United Fruit Company built infrastructure like railroads, ports, and buildings. The company learned how to ship bananas to American markets before they went bad. Anything that interfered with production was met with company-supported suppression and violence. In 1911, the Coyamel Fruit Company did not like the Honduran political leaders in power, so it provided weapons to stage a rebellion against the Honduran government. Coyamel installed a president who was much more fruit-friendly. The U.S., became a key player involved in the so-called Banana Wars of the 19th and 20th centuries. American forces conducted military interventions in Nicaragua, Honduras, Panama, and others. In 1954, the American Central Intelligence Agency, or CIA, supported a rebellion against Guatemala's government, which at the time had antagonistic relations with the United Fruit Company. Support was justified by American concerns with countries in Central America becoming more communistic. In this sense, banana republics became synonymous with foreign markets making domestic decisions for these countries. Rebellion thus became a device for advancing outside market interests. So we've gone from reggae to Mexican rebels like Pancho Villa and the Banana Wars. We end with a brief discussion of the Cuban Revolution and how our images of revolutionary leaders aren't always what they seem. The Cuban Revolution happened in 1959, when a militia led by Fidel Castro took over Cuba's government, which was originally controlled by Fulgencio Batista. Castro maintained control over Cuba from 1959 to 2008. Castro could not have taken over Cuba without the help of Che Guevara, who literally wrote the book on guerrilla warfare, so this improvised type of warfare. Guevara improvised military tactics, which made him a very effective revolutionary against the Cuban government in charge. I remember picking up a biography of Guevara at a used bookstore and devouring its text. 
I even purchased a t-shirt bearing his iconic image. Guevara was born in Argentina. As a young man, he set out to become a doctor and wrote romantically about his love-filled, adventurous youth. You can read about it in The Motorcycle Diaries, Guevara's memoir of his early years. Later, Guevara would become interested in communism and Marxism. That interest compelled him to participate in Fidel Castro's attempt to take over Cuba. At present, Che Guevara remains romanticized and mythologized as a symbol of revolution. You can still buy merchandise with his face on it, but this romanticism oversimplifies both revolutionary warfare and Guevara as a human being. The Cuban Revolution was incredibly violent, and many civilian casualties resulted from the battles. Guevara is a divisive figure, with some folks praising his success in overthrowing an oppressive government regime, while others criticize him for using oppressive tactics to do so. Sometimes when reading about revolutionary events from afar, we do not entirely understand the serious consequences that they can have. The process can begin violent and remain violent afterwards. In other words, taking back the power does not guarantee the success of a society. I discussed the Cuban Revolution and the Banana Wars because they illustrate how the benevolent intentions of rebellion and revolution can lead to negative outcomes, no matter if those intentions are driven by Marxism or capitalism. Furthermore, if you gathered a group of strangers and asked them what they think a revolution represents, you are likely to get different answers. People from different walks of life will probably list vastly different characters as revolutionaries. That is because people have different morals, different causes that they would like to advance. My proposal here is that we redirect our attention from prominent revolutionaries to consider shared values that can transform a society. AWOL Nation is a musical group with a popular song entitled, Kill Your Heroes. Now the song doesn't literally advocate to kill one's heroes. To me, the song dispels the illusion that we need heroes in order to guide our lives and our decisions. After all, great people are also human, and therefore imperfect. And to move forward, we may seek guidance from one of the most important philosophers of our time, Dr. Martha Nussbaum. Nussbaum argues that anger and fear are problematic because these emotions do not undo the wrongdoing. Furthermore, reacting out of anger does not always ensure long-term improvements. What Nussbaum advocates is that we find ways to transcend anger. She argues that we must transition to a superior state of generosity, compassion, and forgiveness. These three qualities, generosity, compassion, and forgiveness, offer a commonly held set of values that can transform society. Rebellion and revolution, when guided by these qualities, can help to signal that wrongdoing has occurred while finding a proactive way to address it. That's all I have for this week, everyone. Be curious, explore often, and pursue meaningful things. Thank you. Thank you.